Legend is often a word you hear thrown around when people talk about Graham Gold, one of the most influential and groundbreaking DJs ever on London's KISS 100. Five years in the DJ Mag Top 40, when it truly meant something. Over 700,000 mixed albums sold, and played in clubs and festivals in over 150 cities across 50 countries. He's been a DJ his whole life, and lived through disco, soul, jazz, funk, and he was there at the beginning of the house music phenomenon. His real craft learning years were at Gulliver's in London in Mayfair from 1980 to 1989, where he played six nights a week, seven hours a night, to the capital's movers and shakers. It's no wonder clubbers and the whole industry call him a legend. Fast forward to 2019, and whilst those heady days of global fame are gone, Graham Gold remains very much a recognised name as a dance music pioneer. He now lives here in Thailand in Copenhagen, where he's still playing. These days it's house, progressive house, progressive trance and melodic techno, all at parties around the country. This week he's here in Pai with Inferno Productions, where he's playing a number of gigs, including Rhythm that's at my house just outside town. We chatted all sorts of things just over an hour, so I hope you enjoy it. Here's my chat with Graham Gold. Graham Gold, welcome to the Task podcast. Thank you very much for inviting me, even though it's freezing. Well, yeah, <laughs> a good place to start. Welcome to Pai as well in the north of Thailand, which, uh, yeah, we're sitting here in, in a local studio and uh, you're wrapped up, I'm wrapped up. Uh, first time to Pai, how are you finding it? Yeah, first time to Pai. Uh, everybody down south told me that if you come in wintertime, it's really cold. So I really wish I'd have bought a woolly hat and some gloves, but I did go shopping yesterday, bought a baseball cap, a hoodie and a long sleeve shirt, So which I've been wearing in bed because obviously down south, you, you don't wear anything. Even in England, you don't wear pyjamas. People wear pyjamas anymore? Well, anyway. I mean, people are, you know, you see all the moaning on social media about how cold it is up here. And then I see all the backlash back in the UK. People are saying that ain't cold. But um, it, it's, it, does, it's, it does feel cold. I, right? well, I, I mean, I, I think that anybody outside, if they've never been to Thailand, they can't have the perception that it could possibly be cold. But it, it was like six degrees the other night. And then I think eight last night. It felt a little bit warmer yesterday. But we went to uh, a reggae festival. And Job To Do were playing, and I've seen them like 10 times down south. And and reggae actually was the first music. That's how I started DJing, was in reggae back in 69. So we went, so, and of course, we had a vodka bucket. I can't remember the last time I had a bucket. And uh, the ice didn't melt. In fact, I think the ice got colder, and I think the vodka uh, froze because I drank, I'm sure I didn't drink that bucket that quickly. But it's beautiful up here, though. It is, and there's quite a scene. Huh? I mean, it sounds like you've been here a few days, and you, you, you're kind of immersing yourself in the in the small local scene. But it's pretty diverse, and a lot going on, huh? musically and, and artistically. Are you finding? Yeah, it seems that way. Um, you know, the the uh, the DJ in the middle of the live acts last night was playing drum and bass. Um, there's a drum and drum and bass scene everywhere all over the world. Uh, I haven't had a chart. I didn't make, was it Electric Valley that happened on Saturday? Yeah, that was the, oh, that was when, yeah, I met you the, the first <laughs> evening. That was the, there, there's been a, sorry, no, Electric Valley was, was a few weeks ago, uh, I, but I don't know, they're much the same. It's a rave in a, right. much <laughs> like the old kind of school days of the 90s in England. Or yeah, and it was on a school night, for heavens above. <laughs> um, I didn't go to that because I left Pangan, Thursday morning, so Thursday, Wednesday night, I just didn't sleep too good. I kind of just 
met this girl and I've been a bit like a 60. And I don't know what she thinks of me. And I've been like, well, she likes me, but probably not as much as I like her. And I, I felt like a 16 year old. And when, you know, like when she doesn't reply to the text, oh God, what's she doing? So I only, and it, I really wound myself up. Uh, so I only slept a couple of hours on Wednesday. Then Thursday, of course, was a bit of a mission up early. Luckily, had the direct flight from Samui to Chiang Mai. Then we stayed overnight in Chiang Mai. That got a little bit messy on the alcohol. And then, um, and maybe something else, I can't remember. And um, then we were up at 6.30 for the drive up here because Damien, who's the guy who's hosting me up here, um, he needed to be here by 10 o'clock. So, yeah, so Friday, so we got here Friday. Friday afternoon, I did the first pool party. And then, yeah, Saturday, after going out, to, I mean, it's weird. You go out to eat in a restaurant. And, of course, you know, in England, when it's winter time, if you want to go out, obviously you have to go outside to smoke in the UK and everywhere in Europe now. But they have the external heaters. And you really would think that you would have them up here. But no, the restaurants are all open like it was summertime and you sit there freezing. There is a business. I mean, I, I've had that chat, I think, about five times in the last week. There's a business but, opportunity. If you if you ever fancy duck, uh, ducking out a DJ and it, it, renting those gas heaters yes. in Pi at this time of year is, is clearly a Why has market. no one done that? I, I do not know. <laughs> but um, yeah, look, I, I want to cast your, your mind back a bit. I mean, it's... You know, in, interesting. I mean, you've you've been in the in the game a long while, right? I mean, 40, DJing forty nine years. I don't this year. think. Is there any other DJ out there that can say that? Just out of interest. Mm. I mean, it's... no, because Coxie is ten years younger than me. Tongs, I think Tongs ten years younger than me. Sanchez, Murillo. <sighs> um, there, there's a side trance DJ, uh, Roger Ram. He actually started DJing when he was 55. Okay, so he came in late. <laughs> yeah, he came in late. Um, no, I don't... I mean, I can't. I kind of hate... I hate being the age that I am, but, you know, as a physical number. But, you know, in my, in my head and my heart, I'm, I'm 35. My passion for the music's never gone away. Um, it's, a, you know, and... and my girlfriends are all have always been 20, 30 years younger than me. Um, so do I want to boast next year that I've been DJing 50 years because then people are, because most people, people say when they look at me, how old are you? And I say, well, that's a bit of a random question. It's a question I get asked most. Um, and they normally, you know, figure out 50 to 55, yeah. which is nice. But, and you, I mean, this is not a video podcast, but, you know, that you, without blowing steam up your ass, you do look about Please that do age. Please make it warmer <laughs> so, in here. <laughs> you, you, yeah, you do, the, you do look around that age. So, uh, Thank you. Yeah, and you didn't start DJing at five, of course. So, no, yeah. so what, what, how did you start DJing? What, okay. what got you into well, it? Well, my, my brother, <clears throat> who actually, I mean, we, we're not, it's not a close family, my brother and my sister and me. Um, but he was an electronics genius. He ended, ended up actually as a major in the Royal Signal. So he was in the army. My dad kicked him out. or well, he kind of kicked us all out, really. Um, when he was like 17. But so when he was 17, just before then, I was 15. And he built this preamp that you could put two record decks into. And I come from, I was born in West London in Ealing. So 
kind of quite a white middle class area and there was one black family Jamaican family who lived over the road and she actually the the daughter of the parents Peaches her name was she was my first love oh and her boyfriend was a DJ called Huntley Tingle it's funny what you remember and they used to have a blues a reggae house party once a month right opposite us and my brother built this preamp because of course back in those days the the reggae DJs they had one turntable and they had the toaster who would chat in between changing the track and my brother built this preamp he put two decks in and it was actually it was rock steady it was after the transition from blue beat and just before reggae and all rock steady and even reggae then it the you'd have a rhythm yeah like the, a big track would have a like say dennis brown's pop a top would be pop a top pop a top but it was a rhythm with exactly the identical BPM, and so we were. He, my brother, was mixing up these these records at this blues, and then I started to play at the blues, and that's how I started. But I remember being, you know, like thirteen, fourteen, and just mad about music. I was good at music, sport, and French, bizarrely, <laughs> um, and I just knew when I was fourteen, this is what I want to do. But of course, back then, no such thing as a superstar DJ or anything like that. So, they didn't exist. So back then, you start we, the the kind of first um, the, the first kind of rudimentary way of mixing, if you want to call it that, was was purely just getting was it getting two records aligned, or was it just playing one record after the other and not having to um, to go and change the record? Oh uh, no, um, it, it depends. They were Garrard SP25 Mark Threes, so they were belt drive, and they had 33, 45, 78. Oh, I remember so, the belt driven. Actually, yes. I remember trying to mix on a belt driven originally. Now you say it, yeah, that, which was totally different because you had to push it round often, and, and you had to hope yeah. that the belt wouldn't come off. Yeah, yeah. And um, often you'd actually lift the platter up and put the belt back on. So of course you took off the rubber mats and you put on felt felt slip mats uh, and you kind of just held the record and yeah I mean even back then it wasn't real mixing but it was the precursor to mixing yeah and it was about a party I assume he's talking about people doing it across the street and I've seen some of the old old kind of footage but when did that go from from that to you know there's a there's a role for a DJ in a club what, what kind of year were you talking about when that mm. happened Probably uh, early 70s, yeah. I, I would say. Uh, I mean, I was still like a mobile. Yeah, I was a mobile DJ from, I started when I was 15, six, but not properly. Um, mobile DJ, I used to do weddings, bar mitzvahs, blah, blah, you name it. And, um, and we used to have this um, ballroom of a pub. That's that's where you went clubbing. There was one club in Greenford called the Oldfield Tavern, but it was the only club. And of course, I was too young to go into the West End to Wardour Street and and and, and you know Whiskey a Go Go and all the clubs up there. Um, so I bought my own equipment, sound system. It was Sims Watts, Citronic decks, and. Um, started a, a road show with Duncan Uren, whose dad actually was Jeff Uren. Who, he was the guy that built the Savages, like the Ford Cortinas, the Escorts. That was his dad. And we used to practice in the basement of, of Duncan's 
father's house. And we used to go, like, we'd, and he would take us to, like, the first gig we ever did was at the first proper gig I ever did was at the Byron Hotel. And, because I'm, I'm, like... S- was I 16 or 17? Something like that. And we were just basically, it was reggae and James Brown. That's what that's what we played. And it was um, it was run by a guy called Arthur Forrest, and his parties were the AFO parties. And they started at 7, finished at half past 10. And they had one in Byron in Greenford, White Hart in Acton, and the White Hart in Southall. And um, then, yeah, then when I was 17, hooked up with this um, got booked to this park hotel in Greenford, in Hamwell, and then ended up playing for this guy five nights a week just across South London in basically ballrooms of pubs. So it was like a back room, like a back room of a pub yeah, where yeah, people yeah. just... But, or a was the DJ ballroom. the focus at that time or was it It was just the, you were there to facilitate, to give the music? Um, I think a bit of both, actually. Yeah, right. I think a bit of both. So when that, so when did, Gulliver's was a lot later, right? Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so Gulliver's was not. Yeah, not, Gu- Gulliver's, Gulliver's, Gulliver's for me started in 1980. That's when I took oh, over. Okay, the, not, not so long later. Okay. Yeah, no, and and that came about because after doing all the the mobiles and I still had my own stuff, I've parted ways with Duncan, and then. Um, yeah, we were the Funky Road Show, and then I buy, then I just became Graham Gold, and um, I found this ballroom of a pub in Greenford called the Railway Hotel, and I came up this with this idea of doing a Sunday night, and we called it I we I called it Champers. So in the week at three o'clock, and I had a van. I had this. <laughs> Shit, man. And at three o'clock in the morning, I was going around all of West London putting up these huge quad posters, you yeah. know, with basically with wallpaper paste. And of course, all that stuff was really illegal, so you had to be really careful. And like, and it took literally three or four weeks only before we packed it out. And we, but, <laughs> but basically, it was packed out with. 15-year-old kids from Greenford High School yeah, right. um, because the, the the landlord of the pub, it was, I can't remember the, the brewery, but he would put, he never told the governor, he never told his area manager that he had this Sunday night going on. And so he would put his own bottles up on Optic, his own, bring his own, bring his own barrels of beer in. And he took a fortune off these kids and it was a pound to get in. So I was earning, I mean, it was 1977. I was earning like 500 quid on a sun. I mean, back on a, then. On a- on a night. On a night. And um, okay, that was a hefty old paycheck. It was, it was a, hef- a hefty paycheck. I mean, obviously, I had to play. I didn't play pay any rent, but I had to play play. I think pay. I think I paid my security with the Purcell brothers, who were a bit, little bit infamous in uh, North West London in those days. Uh, still are actually, um, like fifty quid or a hundred quid, and. Oh, 
I don't know where the money went, but 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 then I also, you know, I, but then yeah, then once a month I'd book Robbie Vincent or Greg Edwards. They were the big soul radio DJs on air. So yeah. Robbie was on Radio London with his Saturday lunchtime, eleven thirty till two. Greg had Soul Spectrum on Saturday night, five till eight. But then I also booked people like Roger Scott and and people like that. So I mean, and they were five hundred quid a yeah. time then. Yeah, right. And so, where, so, I mean, you're known, you're best known probably for, for Kiss, would you say? I mean, there's a lot of stuff and we'll try and, we're not going to cover everything, obviously, 50-year career in the next hour or so. But, you know, I think in terms of the highlights, Kiss would be, Kiss FM would probably be one of the things you're best known. Oh, yeah, for, for, yeah, for sure. I mean, I did do, I did from 19... Blah, so in 83, the guy who ran Solar Radio... Well, I used to do Solar or was it JFM? JFM on a Sunday Sunday morning. My show was stupid o'clock, like nine till eleven. And this time, in this time, this is what. So I'd started. So Gulliver's came about because one of the guys that used to come to Champers, Eddie, I forgot his surname. He told me about this club in the West End called Gulliver's. And I'd been to Monkbury's and I'd been to a couple of other clubs in, in the West End. And we went one Saturday night. And of course, you know, I don't come from money, but all of a sudden I'm making like a few quid. So we got to Gulliver's. It was it was in Down Street in Mayfair, just kind of behind the Hilton. And we walked down steps into the club and I said, I want to join. And <laughs> I hadn't even been. Hadn't even been inside. And Phil Tibber was, he had Phil Tibber and Graham Davies. They were the, the two owners. And Phil, I remember Phil, he didn't know who I was. He didn't know me. And um, I remember he said, I think you need to look inside first because it was an all black club. And here's yeah. this little white boy. And um, and I went, okay. And, um, and then I got very friendly with Graham Fatman Cantor, who was the resident then. Arguably... In my opinion, the best DJ that ever, ever came out of London, uh, out of the UK. He would, he was blessed with a voice. So, I'm, and it would be something like, "Hey, this is the Fat Man, and welcome to Gulliver's." <laughs> I thought, "Oh, I want a voice like that." And his knowledge of music was second to none. And James Hamilton was the biggest music journalist in those days. Unlike the 18-year-old journalists who do it, who have worked for DJ Mag and Mix Mag now, who actually don't know Jack frigging shit about the scene, James knew everything and everything. And James used to guess for an hour on a Saturday night. And then Fat Man invited me to guess for an hour. And, um, and, that, and that was sadly how I got the gig because Fat Man was, he, he was a cokehead. And, and I had no idea, like, why he kept going in. There was a little back room in the DJ, and it was only a tiny DJ box. They didn't even have 1210s either. They didn't have... Well, this is in... You're talking when, in the this early is, 80s? This is... Uh, yeah, 70, 79. 79, okay. I went to the club, and then... Um, yeah, so 79, I started in 80, 1980. And you're mixing, like, soul and... Soul. Disco and soul, okay. Yeah, not really disco. Disco done by them because, you know, America destroyed disco in 
in the very late 70s. Um, and so the BPM, I mean, we were playing, I mean, in, in the late 70s as well. I was playing the Royalty Southgate with Robbie, uh, Chris Hill, Jeff Young. And yeah, we were we were playing disco for sure. Yeah. Not not the George McRae Rock Your Babies because that was like 74, but we were playing all the stuff that was on um, like Sylvester and, and you know, um, you know, you, you make me feel mighty real, and all and all that that kind of stuff. But that kind of gone. Uh, Seventy nine, the BPMs dropped from one twenty eight to a hundred because America declared disco's dead. And so yeah, but so very very soulful and and jazz funk was still a big big thing at that time. And so when and I'm probably jumping. Look, I mean you're. You know, I'm, well, I was born in '73, so hence my, you know, my yeah. knowledge of yeah. that that era is is definitely um, not a lot. But and I, you know, I grew up in the rave era in the UK. I mean, '91, uh, I think I went to you know my first kind of nightclub. But yeah, when did it all change? I mean, forgetting the, we'll talk about. I'm really interested to talk about the kind of influence of the whole MDMA, the drug scene. But just musically, you know, what happened? So was it? And correct me if I'm wrong. So was it Chicago House? Was it US? influence initially coming over to the UK that changed the scene? Yeah, for sure. In yeah. in in 87, although arguably, but it wasn't really called, wasn't called house uh, because the, the term house music comes from the warehouse, which yeah. was the first house music club in Chicago, you know, with uh, the big, le- well, Trax was the first house label, but then you also had DJ International. And um, yeah, that... That that changed that changed the BPM. It changed the whole the whole thing. But if you look from so 1980, the BPMs were a hundred, yeah. and then the early 80s, you had producers like Jam and Lewis, and the, and the, who like the, the SOS band, and you had Brit bands as well. Like you know, we had Level 42, but that was more jazz funk, uh, soul to soul. All their stuff was 95, 98 BPM in the early 80s. But if you look, it's a bit like looking at a graph with the with the British pound against the Thai baht in in reverse. Okay. So, like, you know, 11 years ago when I moved here, the pound bought 62 baht. Now it buys 37. But a year before I moved, it bought 72. A year before that was 82. So, But if you look at the graph, it's yep. just downhill all the way. Reverse that graph, and then the BPMs went over that, ten year, over that eight years from 100, and then there was 102. Then you had Rufus Chaka Khan, 104. Fatback band, I found love in 105. And they slowly were going, and then you had the electro influence, and then they were slowly going back up to, you know, what, then of course you had the whole sound of Los Angeles with the whispers and midnight stuff. Yeah. So the BPMs were increasing to 116, and then boom, out of Chicago comes house music. Yeah, right. And then it hits, so you're talking now mid 80s. 88, 88. Mid to late 80s. Mm. And then. When were the first big... So was Heaven one of the first big clubs in London? When, when were the first big kind of... I just remember reading a story about... So Heaven was um, Oakenfold, right? Was it that opened Was he, Was Oakie um, Heaven or, hip, or Hippodrome? I think it was... I just remember reading a story where Oakenfold opened Heaven and then nearly lost everything and then Ecstasy at the streets and then the club was packed. It was a gay club, right? Yes, yeah, 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 yeah. But that era, I mean, I was, you know... right. 
how did did you see a change? Was it rapping? Was it you know? Was it well, transitional over a few years? What what changed in the scene? And well, you see, for me, I was I was resident at Gulliver's. From 1980 to 1989. Okay. Um, in 85, I did one of the two soul shows on, on Capitol in London. Um, and Kiss started in 1990. So I, but I, then I st- stayed at Gulliver's, but just working Friday, Saturday, because they gave me the shittiest show I never wanted on Kiss, which was the breakfast show. So, but here's the thing. In 88, I'm still at Gulliver's doing my seven hours a night, six nights a week. And I was married. Uh, I had never done a drug in my life. Actually, um, and only actually became aware of the rave scene um, when Gulliver's stopped in... Oh, yeah, well, there's a year it stopped, which was 89, because they... The, the lease on Down Street on the building closed, and then Graham, Phil sold everything. I mean, he's... The money they made from that club. Phil had his house in Dorking back then in 1988-89 was like half a million. I mean, that's like a £10 million mansion. He decided, I'm done. I've had enough. So he bought five villas in Gran Canaria. Graham wanted to stay in the scene. And as much as I love Graham, Phil... It was Phil's chutzpah. Phil, I mean, he was a Jewish guy. He had this way of being with people. He was the he was a people person. He was brilliant at it. Um, so the the club Gulliver's after it moved, it it never survived. But in that, so whilst I'm waiting for Gulliver's to reopen, I got a a, a kind of day job in um for. Um, Diamond Time, and who used to produce music, uh, not produce music videos, there was a thing they did called Disguise, which was um, making a video uh, perfect for public performance, uh, and it had like 20 of the then the biggest current tracks on. And um, of course, I've come from a black music background, and I didn't know about this other stuff, and there was a guy called Steve, he was the main programmer of Disguise, and and then I'm watching, I, my memory's crap, but um, the, oh, Yaz, for example. Yeah, yeah. The, the first the time I came, the, the only way is up. <laughs> I mean, and, and KLF, they, were, they, they went on disguise. And that was kind of my first understanding of, of, of the rave scene because I was this mid-30s guy with three kids and a wife, never done drugs. Um, you almost could have gone on to get an office job at that point then. Yeah, which, yep, yeah. Hence, but... But obviously everything changed because, I mean, you'd come from one... I suppose a lot of those guys who then emerged were coming from the kind of acid house space, really, which I suppose was... I don't know whether that was the kind of start of the the more dirty kind of rave scene, if you want to call it that, that became the mainstream. But, yeah, you were kind of over here in, in, a, in a different area, right? But... You know, did you ever have any idea it was suddenly going to no? Be, I, I used to I used to play because of being at the royalty in the seventies. I used to play the Case to Soul weekenders. Yeah. Not I did the first one. I didn't play. I actually drove Greg Edwards up. Um, but in I, th- I guess it was eighty six. We were playing the Case to Soul weekend up on the Great Cold North Sea in Great Yarmouth, in and um, an acid was 
acid music had, had existed, 86, 87, and I never got why these clubbers were standing right in front yeah, of these right. fuck-off speakers <laughs> just doing this with their heads. They were on acid. I had no idea. Moog keyboards, right? On it. I think it was, was it Moog keyboards they used to create? Yeah, like, the, yeah. I, I, I think. I missed it, but I remember Or, it. or the Roland 303. Okay. Well, that, that was a drum machine. But no, yeah, free, yeah, I think the Moog keyboard was I the think, one, I the think, oscillator I, thing I, that just, it lit, I had one when I was 16. Wow. I, I had a, I wish I kept it now, I have to say, but um, I just remember this thing because, yeah. yeah, we used to do acid and then just turn this thing on and you get one tone through it and you could just then take this one tone and start to kind of, with this oscillator, just bend it. And, you know, yeah. I mean, it was a very rudimentary way of making music, but um from a psychedelic point of view, it certainly took you on a journey, which I, I think I'm, was what was going on. So. I'm a bit annoyed with myself because only recently I watched a documentary with, with Juan Atkins. And, um, oh, God, why is my memory so terrible? Because I have all the knowledge. Um, and and they, were, they were talking about, and it was based in, in Detroit, um, which is kind of where Acid House and Techno, techno come from. But they had this thing whether it was I th must have been the moog but yeah yeah they were talking about it demonstrating it and i, I, and I forget you had i think it was i remember being into a, hawkwind were a band oh i remember hawkwind. Well, I mean, they used to use one i think that's where i mean it's a very different kind of music but they had that moog wow. within the band so they kind of had this weird acid house music going right. on within their kind of mainstream band music i mean hawkwind did about 50 albums didn't they? I, I i just they, they were like the uh Oh man, what was the American one? The Dead, the, the Grateful Dead. They were like the right. British version of the oh, Grateful okay. Dead. I, I felt that. Well, that was. I mean, I when I was so when we were seventeen, eighteen, I was doing these mobile discos, and predominantly that the guy that I used to work for three of those five nights a week, all those in the ballrooms, all those gigs, they were under eighteen gigs. So you'd get on the mic and go, "We got the brand new track from the Jackson Five coming up." I remember <laughs> when I introduced, "I want you back," and um, there was s s one Hawkwind track only ever. S Silver, Silver Machine. Silver Machine. Yeah. Well, I think Lemmy played on that, actually. I think uh, Lemmy was... Who's Lemmy? Le sorry, Le Lemmy from Motorhead. He was, oh, right. Uh, she, uh, which, is he dead now? I've I got no is. idea. Uh, Le Lemmy from Motorhead played for Hawkwind. Right. So he was the big biker-looking geezer with the, he used oh, to play okay. bass. Right. And he, he played for Hawkwind for a while. It was one of these bands where a lot of people came and went... Um, but yeah, Silver Machine. I'm pretty sure. I, I, it was never my, never my music. I was my first. You know, the first record I ever bought was Dion. No, that was that was '64. So no, actually, I'm gonna put my hand up. I don't. I ever told anyone this. My first record I ever bought was, <clears throat> and it doesn't really. <laughs> <laughs> it doesn't really apply to me. It was the tremolos and silence is golden. <laughs> I don't know how to be silent. You know but I, don't, I don't even know it, but I'll put it, uh, on, the, I might put it on the podcast silence afterwards. Silence is golden, but my eyes still see. And then Small Faces, Ichiku Park. Never got the lyrics. What did you do there? I got high. I, I mean, that was all psychedelic. And what was that on an old seven inch? Yeah, old seven, vinyl, seven yeah. inch, yeah. And then I swapped the tremolos for Dion Warwick Walk On By. And then I discovered Sam Cooke and Otis and Aretha and Wilson. And I was just born white, but I was black inside. That I just, it was black music. And I remember my 14th birthday, my friends came round for, for my birthday party and I've got my This Is Soul album, which cost me 19 shillings and 11 pence with, you know, 
Otis, Dock of the Bay, Warm and Tender Love, Percy Sledge. Oh, my God, that song. And my other friends bought this shit Jimi Hendrix and Cream albums. I'm not putting that on my fucking record player. I just, I just never got that... <laughs> I I never got that rock guitar. Hence just, you ended up on a deck all your life. Yeah, it just it just never appealed to me. And, and white by white by pop at Gulliver's in um, on a f- Wednesday night, midweek night. We had downstairs, and there used to be. Um, he was the biggest promoter on that in, indie scene. Would you call it Steve Strange? And it was all the white boy stuff. Like you know, I can't even. Re- remember the names but it was um when is this what era what year are you talking m- mid 80s so it was like the glam the glam rock kind oh, of thing like not your Def Leppard type stuff that was too late no was no late. um oh god human human league human league okay that, oh, that, like your, well that was your that was your kind of mainstream 80s yes crappy yeah. pop well it wasn't crappy I mean some of it was got yeah yeah I mean it's, I remember it all on you know now one and now two and right yes yeah yeah albums. I mean Gary Newman was different um yeah Gary Newman was different but all that other stuff it just it was had no appeal to me whatsoever so once the you know what people kind of think of the the modern era of of dance music and you know let's call it i mean the 89 summer of 89 was arguably where everything changed but how did that affect your career and, and not at all because i i was still at gulliver's so i i missed out on that summer of love i missed out on those early m25 raves okay. i had i was married i had no i mean the, all i knew about it was opening it seeing it in the sun with you know ecstasy kills and blah 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 and but you know there are events that i so wish i'd gone to like uh, castle norton and yeah i missed that i don't remember it because everyone went actually and because that was about... That must have been 90, right? I think I think that was 89. It was 89. I missed it. I, I went to Glastonbury in 1990, which right. I remember... I mean, I was 16 then, so that was my first... Right. Yeah, it was either 89 or 90, but... So you... But you must have kind of gone in... You must have kind of fallen into the, the mainstream, if you want to call it that mainstream. It wasn't then, it wasn't mainstream, but in terms of dance music, it was mainstream. You must have, at some point, kind of traversed over to that, did you, and end up... Playing in the kind of the more common clubs with your twelve tens and uh, yeah, um, that I mean. So in nineteen ninety, I did Friday Saturdays at Gulliver's, but I was play, although it was a black club, I was playing house and there. But I did the breakfast show for two years on Kiss. Yep. The only good thing that came out of doing the breakfast show on Kiss was. The second year, so we launched September 1990. So it was me, Mark Webster, and, and Sarah HB. Sarah actually went on to Radio 1. Um, was in 91, Kiss won the contract from Capital to do Pepsi Across America. So Mark, Sarah, and I, we went to America to do the breakfast shows. And one of the cities we did it was from Chicago. And it was the year of the first anniversary of the second place of the warehouse. So we went to the second warehouse, not the first one. And that was incredible. Um, Mark and Sarah were doing 
speed pills. I have no idea. I know we were on a different level because uh, I still hadn't done a drug. But there was three floors in this club and there was all the DJ International crew on one floor. There was uh, the DJs from, from New York, maybe even Tanaglia was there I can't remember but yeah that that was awesome and then in 1992 I guess we all got sacked from the breakfast show which is what happens in radio or TV always the first for the first breakfast show team they last two years and I'd never done breakfast show I didn't I remember like if Sarah Sarah was our travel our weather and travel girl, and if Sarah so if Sarah wasn't doing the travel, we'd have the fax machine coming from the AA, yeah. and of course I wouldn't have time to read out the highlights, and I would literally read out the whole fucking travel thing, which took like six minutes. And who gives a shit if you're in South London about one traffic light out in North London? We didn't have a producer at the time. We can't self which was insane. And then when, when that went... Um, luckily I kept the chart show which is also the other show I didn't want because that by definition is the most commercial but then Malibu came on as a sponsor so this is the back end of 92 and I and, and so I got an extra hour and I and that hour was meant for really for me to be playing the tracks that would be hitting the charts in the month ahead or whatever. But I used it to play house music. Yep. And um, and then after six months of that, so we kind of hit early 93, I there was a flying squad. Oh, I forgot the guy whose name, but the biggest, biggest flying cup. So then you, I mean, there was no social media then, right? So everything was flyers. And I remember Russell from the flying squad saying to me, more people are talking about your hour pre out the first hour on the chart show than they are about Jules and Danny. And so that was like, Hey, Jules and Danny were doing what radio? What, they, they no, what? they were doing Kiss at the time. Oh, they were doing Kiss. Yeah, they, Sorry, they, Tong was doing. Pete Tong was doing yeah, Radio Pete One. Was, okay. Pete was doing Radio One. So yeah. they they were still on Kiss at the time, and um, I thought, okay. And then there was this little club night jism started, and um, playing that with Darren Pierce, who was one of my favourite DJs in London at the time. Very forward thinking, and then in '93, Kiss said to me, "We want you to front our." first new club a new club night and basically it, it was at legends old in old burlington street and they'd launched it the back end of 1990 so the back end of the year that kiss launched with judge jewels and it was called fresh and it ran for three just under three years and then kiss said okay we want you to front this night so i pulled in and I could pick the DJ. So Dave Lambert was one of the residents at Fresh. So I needed that for the continuity. Um, brought in Darren Pierce because he was my favourite DJ. And, and Peach was born. And it was the opening was September 1993. And it was my third gig of the night. I'd done, I'd done I used to do this live uh, club gig on Fox FM in Oxford, 10 to 12. Then I went to play somewhere in Essex. And then we're driving to into the West End. And my set time was 3.30 till 5. And I'm with Simon, my driver. And when I say my driver, it's not meaning to sound ego. Blah, it's just that meant I could have a drink and he never drank. And 
And I said to Simon on the way there, it's going to be fucking empty. There's going to be no one there. I walked uh, into the... F- a f- we, more that, people that opening... probably a prime the- time, I would have thought. Yeah. A nightclub but, in that era. Yeah, yeah. yeah but w- they said it's busier than any of Jules's nights. Yeah. That was our opening night. And then I thought, yes. So I, to answer your question, no, I didn't really feel that transition. Yeah. I kind of missed out... On it a little, although I discovered house, you know. But when I was on the breakfast show, I'm st- still kind of pushing soul music because ki- that's I mean, Kiss come Kiss when it was a pirate come came from a soulful background. Of course, though, you had the late and legend Paul Trouble Anderson. He, you know, he was he was on there. Um, so, but yeah, I, I kind of missed out. But I was there in I was playing it in the late '80s. But then when Kiss came along. I didn't really, I didn't really get booked to do any credible gigs. So, and when did did you what what happened then? Did you start doing some some bigger stuff then? And did you get to Ibiza at that point, or you got there later? Ninety four, I got okay, to. Okay, so you were there early in Ibiza. Yeah, yeah relatively. N- yeah, I think the the very first kiss in Ibiza was ninety three. I didn't do that. I mean, we hadn't Peach hadn't launched, but yep. Peach was. Without, was, well, that and also, I guess, I guess late 93, Jules went to Radio 1 first of all, and then Danny Mm. Rampling went to Radio 1. And I inherited both their shows. And then, and that was, that was the catalyst for... Graham Gold's not this cheesy fucking wanker from The Breakfast Show, which everybody just thought because they didn't know my history of being at Gulliver's in the whole, you know, nine years, six nights a week, seven hours a night. <clears throat> and every, 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 anybody who was anybody came into Gulliver's, but we also had every record company was pushing me music, plugging me music. And I definitely was responsible for breaking a lot of tracks first at Gulliver's. So I wasn't this cheesy wanker that Mixmag thought I was because they'd never heard of me. So, yeah, 93, then my... Then then it took off. Yeah, right, and it's, well... What are we in now? How many years ago? That's tw- uh, 26 years, years ago, ago. And still going strong. Well, not as strong as <laughs> not as strong as before. I'd, I, well, yeah, I mean, you got it. I met you the other day. You did three gigs last week, right? See, I mean, I, club size, maybe not yeah. the, the same size, yeah. but you're still working yeah. hard, I did, right? no, five actually last week. Five on last week. I did Monday, Wednesday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. But that's unusual. So um, for your, I live on Kopangan, by the way, which is in the south of Thailand. And uh, they call it Southeast Asia's Ibiza. It isn't really because we don't have a high, we don't have an amnesia, we don't have a space, we don't, or not space anymore, it's high, uh, don't have a passion, but we do have this, in fact, maybe we even, we're more, D, we're, if everywhere in Ibiza was like DC-10, cool underground, that's Copangang. What brought you to Copangang? So 10 years in Copangang, right? <coughs> 11. 11 mm. years. What brought you to Copangang? Like. <laughs> A stupid... Okay, so <clears throat> fast forward 2004, I got... When I say I got sacked from KISS, I got dropped from KISS. A new programme controller came in, and basically he was under orders to get rid of every specialist DJ. Of course, you know, by now I'd gone from being a daytime uh, a, a, a daytime DJ to being a specialist DJ, obviously. And um, so I lost the gig... 
Peach moved from Legends, and then 95, we moved to Cafe de Paris, then we moved to the Leisure Lounge, and then we moved to Camden Palace, which is now Coco. And when the new owners, and it's what's weird about that whole story is that Camden Palace was owned by Luminar Leisure, the biggest nightclub player in the whole of the UK, and, you know, and bars as well. But everything used to go on at Camden. You had like, you couldn't walk through the club without being, Bill, E, Coke, about a hundred times, even though the head of security controlled the dealers. I mean, but I didn't even actually even know that then. And, um, although I was using by then, of course. Um, And... So the so Coco this now became a private company. They didn't want this high profile, and we were high profile um, club radio promoted club brand in their club. So we got kicked out. We moved to Studio Thirty Three South London, but we would we had never been a South London club. And for those that don't live in London, uh, like every country has a north south divide. London, and I think actually major most major cities have a north south divide. Yeah, definitely. We do because of of the river. And if you're born north, the only reason you'd go south would maybe well now it's called the O2, but it used to be called whatever it was, the fridge. Uh, in Brixton and electric in Brixton. Otherwise, you wouldn't, wouldn't really go south. You you stay north of the river. I've forgotten that. I think the question I, was I, what I, you know what the question was. What got, what brought you to Copenhagen? Oh, I think. oh yes, yeah, yeah. So I, I'm not, <laughs> yes. there was an answer in there somewhere. Sorry. No, that's um, <laughs> so basically, 2004, my career just died. I mean, I was always open about doing drugs. I'm I'm, I'm a cancerian. I'm an emotional dickhead, uh, but I also wear and I wear my heart on my sleeve, as you heard at dinner. Just so, just so you know, Matthew was at we were at dinner, and I was kind of opening up about this girl, and everyone was telling me what a fucking idiot I am, and I'm like, yeah, I know already. Um, so one Monday morning, I woke up, and I so we're now in 2007. I had an email from this friend of mine. Just bought a dive school in Thailand. This guy's name's Alex. Oh, okay. Uh, whereabouts? He's a Kopangam. Never heard of it. I had actually heard it uh, of it. In fact, I had booked to go there in 2002, the year of the tsunami. Um, but in October, and I booked it, and me and my then girlfriend, Michelle, arguably the love of my life, um, then I got booked to play Pasha in Sharm El Sheikh on New Year's Eve. And I said, I'm not coming unless I can bring my girlfriend. And all the scheduled flights were were sold out. So we had to get a charter. So we left Christmas. We could only leave Christmas Day and couldn't go back New Year's Day. So we ended up having a two-week holiday. So I cancelled Kopangam. So anyway, so I said to, and I said to Alex, hmm, I don't know why I even thought to move there, but I kind of worked out because I got screwed. I've been married three times, so I got screwed. Not my first wife, God bless you, Carol. The other two screwed me. The, the mother of my boys in the middle more than anything. So I worked out what I could leave England with, and I wrote him, and it wasn't much after all I'd earned in, my, in, in the latter part of my career. Um, what can 160 grand buy me? And he wrote me back paradise. So... I got a gig in 
October, I got a gig in Bangkok. Pattaya, Pattaya, Pattaya the first Saturday, Bangkok the following Saturday. So I had the middle week on Kopangan. So Pattaya the first place you did a gig in Thailand. Oh, you get par- paradise and you end up in Pattaya. Not, be- not the best introduction to uh, it. Well. What, a small nightclub, I assume, was it? Not on Walking uh, No, well, it, it was actually the water park. It was... Uh, oh, okay. that's, it, probably, that's actually probably the best place to be doing a gig in Pattaya. Yeah, and, and, and then what's weird, we ended up going to mix. There was a couple of uh, English teachers at the party, and one of them I fan- really fancied. And, <clears throat> excuse me, we ended up going to, uh, to, to mix uh, in the old mix. And actually, I ended up there as a resident once a month, uh, but playing what what I play now, and then so the middle week, I, I so I flew to Samui. I remember landing on Samui, getting the 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 mini bus from the airport to the pier. Well, this doesn't look like paradise either. This looks like shit in a traffic jam, and like it kind of reminded me of like being in before the. Before the 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 control the the whatever what's that surcharge called when you drive into London you have to pay anyway when there used to be traffic everywhere in London it remind, reminded me of being in London with hot water around it well I don't want to live good here good description that's a lot <coughs> like Bali now I think so yeah yeah uh, yeah a bit like Bali but I actually like I like Bali because it's not really it, it, there is road traffic but it's more scooter traffic but I, I, I like I like Bali more than I like Samui and anyway so we got the ferry Alex met, met me at Tongsala which is the main the main pier in on Kopangan and we drove north to Shalok Lam and I just remember oh, wow this is more like paradise like real island life and it was November which is the lowest month May, June, May, June and November, but November, the lowest month, and there was no one on the island. We hadn't, the, we hadn't even, the Russian invasion had not even come to Kopangan 11 years ago. And I thought, it's really fucking quiet. Do, do I want to live here? And he said, well, just wait another month and blah, blah. So I got home, end of November. And I don't know, even know what I thought about moving there. Was it a like? Was it a? I mean, obviously you were at a crossroads in one way or another. But it, was yeah. it, you know, as much professional as it was lifestyle? I mean, do, you were looking for, you know, kicking off new gigs in a different part of the world, or was it just purely I want to, want to get away and, and be somewhere new? I think I it was. I'm a Cancerian, as I said, so I always wanted to live by the ocean. I always wanted to live by the ocean, um, and I just thought, you know, I've worked my fucking ass off my whole life. You know, my parents were poor when I was 13. I used to have a milk round, paper round, uh, delivering coal light, bags of coal on push bike after school, just so I could buy my first Ivy, Ivy tongue and tassel loafers and, and um, Ivy brogues. Uh, they were the big shoes at the time when I was a skinhead when I was 16. And, um, and I just, and then of course, you know, to get where where I got, you know, through the eighties with the gut with in with Gulliver's, you know, I was working six nights a week, seven hours a night, and then, uh, well, that was just in the club. Literally, my day was getting up at eleven, going for a run, 
doing some weights I always worked out leaving London, leaving Harrow at two o'clock driving two hours to South London to Deptford where the JFM studio was did did the drive time show four till seven Monday to Friday had the keys to Gulliver's to the club so I'd get into the West End around quarter to eight cook my dinner produce the next day's show club opened at 9.30 that was my life for four years working eight and then on a Sunday the day I didn't work, I used to record all my radio shows on JFM. So I would slice them up, trying to make a really good demo and send those off to every single radio station in the UK. Plus, I was singles reviewer for Blues and Soul. Plus, I wrote for Root magazine. So I worked like 18 fucking hours a day for... So semi-retirement in coping, yeah. Yeah, I, theoretically. I, I hate the word retirement, but I yeah. I know you do. But yes, <laughs> but, but yeah. Right, semi-holiday yeah, is yeah. a better and, way to say it. And before I moved there, I managed to lock down... Locked down a residency in, in Pattaya uh, once a month and in Bangkok. And that kind of, and that paid all right. But, of course, you know, I hadn't learned about Thailand. So those things don't last forever. And did you, you ended up, have you, when you first got here, did you end up in the whole full moon party scene? Did you, were you, were you straight into that? Did you um, of those things? Or? Straight in, but, but not working, but okay. not, not working it. Um, so I, I, in, in, I got back home end of November, took my kids out for dinner and said, this is what dad's thinking about doing. And they said, dad, we're cool with that. Went into the estate agent, December 12, 13. And they, I said, I want to put my house on the market. And she said, Graham, it's two weeks before Christmas. No one's going to even look. I sold it in three days. And it wasn't a mansion, by the way. It was just a normal fucking three-bedroom semi. But there was another family in the village that uh, that got, di- got divorced. And she wanted to. So I got lucky. So it was a kind of, this was meant to be. So, yeah, I... And, no, the first the first six months was quite lonely actually on Kopangan. You know, I'm if I'd been twenty or thirty, but I fucking wasn't. You know, I was 55. <laughs> yeah, and you don't want to be hanging around the Seven Eleven drinking a beer outside, oh. or which you can you see that happen a lot here, right? People come yeah. over. Did you ever be happy and and end up? Yeah, sitting there drinking a Leo. Did the... did you ever have the thought that every time you saw... So, for those of you that if you've not been to Thailand, um, Pattaya we've talked about, just so you know, it's the most despicable city on the planet, and if I was the world, the, the world leader, I would bomb it and blow it out of the water. But you see fat six-year-old Farang Westerners, not just from England, but from Germany and other places, with these 18-year-old... Thai girls or boys is quite a big... I mean, my, one of my son's gay, so I'm not homophobic. But when you see... Anyway, it's absolutely disgusting. Um, shit, set, I you were, you, were, mate, you... you were setting up for a question. You were going to ask me a question. I don't know what. Oh, yeah, you... yeah. So I, I, when I first moved here, when I saw these... 56 year old guys not so this is on Kopangan now we're back to Kopangan yep. sitting outside at 711 at 7 in the morning with a big bottle of chang you think fuck please never will i never let me end up like you you sad fuck well the question is have i ever <laughs> ended no up no, no. Did, you, did you ever have that thought <laughs> um no I, well i i, I mean i've 
I mean, you see it here, right? It's not just a seven here. There's a couple of family marts. There is actually a bit of a kind of subculture that goes on. This this kind of Frank subculture that goes on around the the family. Well, it's not even the family mart, but it is a kind of localized family mart. But I mean, I just never. You know, I enjoy a drink, but yeah, not not outside the Seven Eleven. Like I like drinking in a nice pub or a wine bar, so it didn't really cross my mind. Um, but at the same time, I've never even been tempted to sit and, you know, be part of the kind of Seven Eleven drinking crew if that's what you want. That makes it sound yeah. kind of cool, actually. I, but, uh, I I did I did it I did it once. I went on a three day vodka bender <laughs> because that's, well. But at some point, you're going to end up at the 7-Eleven. Yeah, yeah. And, and I was. I was driving drunk because on Copangan, it's actively, although I had my own Jeep and my own scooter um, because I heard about the rip-off. So the second day I moved Copangan, I bought a scooter. Um, year later, I bought a Jeep. But I broke the golden rule that you don't read in Pangyang Info. And you don't see on pangyangis.com. For those that live on a tourist island, never fall in love with a tourist. And I fell in love. Three weeks, I've lost my heart to this girl and she broke my heart. And then, is she still out there? Do you still know? No, 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 no. no. <laughs> she, we, she, don't, we don't have a big enough subscription following, but I don't know if, if you yeah. want to put a call out. But, but, but she yeah. was the reason for my book. Her name was, okay. was Sarah, and she was uh, en route from Australia to London to start a new job. And literally two weeks before she left Australia, she, she was meant to get married and she broke it off. So um, she's already a bitch. <laughs> Well, I'm mindful of time. We're nearly an hour, but there's a few more things I want to ask really? you about. Yeah, yeah, it goes Sorry. quick. No, it's it's good. It's um, but there were, were a couple of things I, you know, I really wanted to talk about. We haven't talked about drugs. Well, we ha- well we have a little bit. <laughs> yeah. but I actually want to talk about you know more of the production side. Really, I'm interested just personally about what you do from a production point of view. I mean, you've worn a lot of different hats through your career. I mean, radio, DJ, DJ, uh, producer. I mean, you're um, you know we talked a bit um, at dinner the other day. I know you're. You know, you, you still write tracks now, right? I mean, how 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 big a part of your life has that been in terms of the production and write, music writing side? Well, um, okay, hands up. My my when I first started to produce uh, was I always had an engineer. My first engineers were Dave and Eastie from Cool World because I funded the the money to to start Cool World Records when they bought a DAT tape into me at, funnily enough, at Peach at Legends, and it was called Invader. And I fell in love with this track and I funded the record label. So then I did a remix, which is, um, was Bomb Scare, Two Bad Mice, but I did it under... Oh, I remember, I had that on a, t- yeah. on a, on a 10-inch, I yeah. had that on a limited oh. 10-inch, I remember, yeah. I did that under the alias of Steve Silver, yeah, for yeah. some stupid reason. And then I met Dino Lenny, and then he was my engineer, and then... Oh, bless her. I can't remember her name. But she became my engineer for all the tracks like, hmm, or were they my own? Shit. I remade, when I remade the ending, which I got asked three times by ministry. I Basically, I was in Ibiza at Sacapaya, my favourite restaurant in Ibiza, with Michelle, this love of my life I told you about. Which and one's this? Sorry, this is the one that broke your heart? Or this is, no, no, she broke my heart as All well. Right, no, oh, I'm a soft <laughs> fuck. Everyone breaks my heart. I need to grow up. And um, But I heard this piece of music came on. 
in Sacopea in this restaurant. And Michelle was from Essex, right? So she come, are you coming round my ass tonight? That was the one that I couldn't stand, was the way she spoke. Now she works for some big bank and she's changed. Anyway, so I said, shut the fuck up, Michelle. What is this music? So I went over to the maitre d' and he said, Graham... I play this every time you come in. And it was Brian Eno, the ending. And he wrote it down for me. So when I got back to the UK, I went out, I bought the album. It was on his 1980 Apollo album. And I remade it with Helen, Helen, Helen. That's the engineer's name. And I got some, I bought somebody in to re- replay the piano. because really intricate. And... Put it on a on a white label, sold five, ten thousand. Ministry wanted it, but fucking Eno's publishers would not clear the fucking publishing, you bastard. Because that would have been my biggest hit. I would have that would have propelled Graham Gold neck. Well, that and going to Radio One. But Tony Parfit said, Graham, I really want you on Radio One, but you're the voice of Kiss. So I, that's why I, that's. The, honestly, the only reason I never made Radio 1. So, and then 2004, we talked about when my career went down. Then I thought, Graham, I need to produce. Because in 1997, 98, the whole thing changed. From being being a great DJ, the only two last two DJs that came through from being just a DJ, Eddie Hallowell, because he was a technical genius on the decks, and James Abelia, because he was a technical uh, technical genius with all the pioneer effects. They were the last two. If you look at every single flyer on any club all around the world, it's because they're producers, and I needed to produce. So I bought Logic, I bought a, a sexy big fuck-off G5 Mac, Logic, John Double O Fleming, bless him, I love you, John. He lived near me. He would come over and help me. I never did went to SAE, but I did some like online stuff. SAE, and, God, I went to Holloway, right? Yes. Yeah, that's actually where I went. Yeah, oh. I forgot. Now you just said it. I forgot uh, about yes, it. Yes, School of Audio. I, I, yeah. did a, I went there, funny enough, I went there to do a couple of chats. Yeah. Which actually, well, I went there, when did I go? Yeah, they're not 1989, right. I was there. But I was on a YTS course. You know, oh, 27, God. 27 quid a week, YTS. <laughs> wow. But, I got, but it, they what a the course. Go- well, the government subsidised uh, SAE, so that was kind of handy. Oh, I wish I'd have done that. Oh, it was so yeah, eighty nine. Well, you'd have been. Well, you probably could have done even. I don't think it was age restricted. No, I, I couldn't. Right? Have, I couldn't have done it on the YTS, but yeah. I, but I was making enough money then to actually. Have, but I never, I never thought to do it. And Adam White was another DJ. He helped me a lot. And then for that three years, I learned. I was celibate. I never had a girlfriend in three years. My right hand was going mental because I needed to learn to fucking produce on my own. So you deli- you were was celibacy a a deliberate decision to no, focus no, on, or, or it was if, if just because you weren't going out? No, if I could because uh, I wasn't going out. Oh, and okay. uh, I, thought, and, I thought you used celibacy then to channel your oh, productivity. Or something. No, I mean I was on uh, plenty more fish, but that was that's a fuck off website. <laughs> I, think, I think twice I got hit on, but they were girls who were actually working for Plenty More Fish just as your monthly subscription runs out. Oh, um, anyway, so I, I had one date, actually. But no, I needed to get my career back. Yeah. And the only way... I mean, I was still gigging, but enough to pay the mortgage. You know, still enough to pay the mortgage. And, um, and then... 
and Van Dyke was playing my tunes, Tiesto was playing my tunes, Armin was playing my tunes, but it wasn't enough to get me back where I so was. So playing, you mean they were DJing your... They, so that yeah, you, the, you were releasing 12 y- inches, were Yeah, you? yeah, yeah. Yeah, right. yeah, they were playing my tracks. And you're still, produ- you're still writing stuff now, though, right? Now is my mission. So when I moved to Copangana, flew the whole studio over. Uh, the other stuff went on the boat because it took three months. Um, flew the studio... And then I lost uh, the visual monitors on my G5, and it was pre-Intel, so I couldn't get fixed. So I bought a MacBook Pro because I learned Logic, and Logic only works with a Mac. And then I got my house robbed, and they robbed my laptop. And then I couldn't afford another one. So I bought a, a PC, really good PC, bought Ableton. In fact, only last so I've been on nine suite. Only last week I got some money to upgrade, and it was Black Friday, so they did a 25% off deal off the upgrade to 10. So my mission, and I've done, I mean, I've done some good tracks in the last 10 years and I've signed pretty much everything. Um, You know, they've made the Beatport hype chart and stuff. So my mission now is to produce as good as the music that I play. And it's not easy. I bet it's not. I mean, I, you know, years ago, I even dabbled in it with Cubase and, I think even it was all just just when everything went digital, Cubase, Atari, and but yeah, it's you got to be dedicated, right? I mean, it's it takes a lot of time and and uh, a lot of effort just to. I mean, it's it's, comp- it's using a com- it's it's programming really. Well, I mean, it, it is it is programming, and and as all my friends know on Copan Gang, me me and he, me and elect and computers just don't work. Me and phones don't work. Yeah. Um, I'm shit at technology, but with making music. It's a, it's. I mean, I've got all the good plugins from from Spectrasonics. I use Styler. I use uh, Spire. Uh, oh God, top of my fucking memory goes again. But I've got like ten awesome plugins. But it, it, in ten suite, apparently, it has like its own awesome ones. Um, it's writing. It's all about the kick and the bass line. So I got blessed in in February. DJ Lion, I met in Goa. Uh, he's an Ableton certified teacher. He came, stayed with me for three weeks and for free. And I said, the deal was, you come stay in my spare room for free. I want Ableton. I want master. You know, I want master classes from you. So I le- completely changed the way I, I, I produce. And I just struggle with bass lines because I overthink everything, which I overthink everything in fucking real life anyway but I, in the studio i even overthink oh, is that good enough and blah, blah, blah. but i'm getting there and that's my, that's my mission because if i want to I, I don't i could never handle going back to where i was you know two gigs every friday three every saturday in the summer season getting on a plane every single day of the week i don't want to do that again i'm Two O L D for that. I never say the word for that schedule, but I want to produce and I want and I want to write good stuff. Well, stick with it. Sounds. I mean, you've you've uh, come this far. We're we're kind of at the end. Now, I, I usually have a few quick fire questions because I know we might have. We'll, we'll abort anyone who doesn't like the music industry on this, and I didn't really ask any more interesting personal stuff. But I haven't written them down. But let me try and. Remember a few of them because it often opens up a bit more dialogue that's kind of general. Um, something you couldn't, if you had something you just cannot go without in your life. Women. 
<laughs> really? <laughs> That's interesting. Um, After that, well, I've heard I heard you talk about it the last few days. Yeah. Married, married three times, a lot of dating, but yeah. Um, well, I couldn't. I, I, my phone. I, I, really? guess, I guess for everyone. You can stick with women. It's all right. One okay. answer, that'll do. All right. We're, we're, all right. Women and my phone so I can communicate with women. Good to hear. <laughs> and if, you, if, uh, if Graham Gold of... If Graham Gold could uh, speak to Graham Gold of, of 16 years old, what advice would you give yourself? The same that I give everybody who... You know, it's stupid. People still email me or find me on Facebook through the socials. Like... I I want to be like you. <laughs> no, you fucking don't. Um, <clears throat> if you want to do what this job that I do, and trust me, it's a job. Um, you have to live it, breathe it, sleep it, twenty four hours a day. Want it more than you ever wanted anything in your life, because those doors will get slammed, and you have to kick those motherfucking doors open. And um, you have to, and you have to give up everything to pursue this career. It it costs a lot. Do you think it's um, do you think it's easier now than it was back then, or no. it's harder now? I mean, this. <laughs> I, I remember when I was fifteen and did my first gig. Even then, everyone wanted to be a DJ, but not everyone. Not like it is now because now it's so easy. Now, right. as you know, I live on Copangam. Especially with the Russians, a lot of the Russians come, and even the European, Western Europeans. They buy a laptop, they buy a controller, they buy a top ten from Beatboard. I'm a DJ. And I said, Actually, you're not. But no, I, so I would say it's it's harder now. So technically, maybe easier, but in terms of breaking in, more difficult. Yeah, because the as I said, the only way to break in as a DJ now is to produce. Yeah, you right. know, I wouldn't be playing tracks by. Kolev or Casby, Matt and Casby, Stan Kolev or um, oh Red Axes or whoever, whoever, Dinox and Beckers. You, we, we wouldn't know of these people unless they produced. So, yeah, if you want some advice, and that would be... Actually, yeah, that would be the advice I would give me when I was 16. Learn to produce. Cool, and I, the one question I was going to ask, which you actually How answered. much drugs do I do? <laughs> well, you can answer that if you want, but you don't strike me as a mental No, I, I, I watched it. Do you know, it was, I, I didn't do a drug till 1993. When I was at Gulliver's, we used to have two Arabs, Ricky and Hassan, who had the best table on the left-hand side, unisex toilet on the other side of the entrance as you came down into the club, two security, Peter and Dino, DJ Box was opposite the dance, the other side of the dance floor. I never knew why Dino would stand on the door of the toilet so no one else could go in when Ricky or Hassan went in with a very famous celebrity. And trust me, we had everyone from Stevie Wonder... Obviously, he didn't go into the toilet. I don't mean that to be as funny as it sounded on his own. Um, from Dinah Ross, Stevie Wonder, Harlem Globetrotters, Larry Blackman, Cameo, Evelyn King, Frankie Beverly and Mays, Mike Tyson, Muhammad Ali, they, Jimmy Cliff. I sat in Gulliver's talking to my fucking, one of my heroes, Jimmy Cliff. I didn't mention him earlier. Um, he didn't go into the toilet, by the way. But you, I, I never knew what went on. I had no idea. So you, well, you could, yeah. I mean, that's your. So you could write your list of who was who was on it and who wasn't based on that experience. <clears throat> yeah, right? yeah, kind of. But I didn't do my I didn't do my first drug till my, my first line of coke till 
93. I was I hadn't done a drug. Oh, yeah, no, yeah. There was speed. I a bit, a bit of speed in '93, and I didn't do my first E until maybe Christmas '93. It was a well. That's when it was all about. I mean, it was, that, that was before from then. '88, and it was '88. But I never, no, I never did E. I, I was petrified. I remember when I did my first pill. It was at the Christmas party of Club UK, but it was called Hollywood Wandsworth then, and I was on air at. Four in the morning covering for this geezer, Caesar the geezer, actually, who did a chat show. Can you imagine me on a chat show? And I did my... <laughs> I don't think you'd have a problem. <laughs> I, did, I did my first pill at 11 o'clock and I ran to the toilet. I said, Graham, you fucking asshole!" And I put my you fingers... You were hosting, in. were you? You were hosting the show? Uh, I was hosting the show at four in the morning. Right, yeah. okay, yeah. And I put my fingers down my throat going, Graham, don't be a dick. You don't want to start be doing drugs. So actually, I don't think I had done coke at, at this time. No, I don't think I had. And um, and I, anyway, I couldn't. Th- it, it wouldn't come out. I was fucking high as a kite. Got to drove to the Holloway Road, uh, and of course, radio station has security. Uh, so hi, security, love you. Walked upstairs, put the studio live, and uh, you're meant to take like four minutes is the maximum that you take a caller. I took four callers in two hours. And that was fun. And all the way up from there. So how's it? Well, I'm pretty much at the end, but you, you kind of opened up a, opened up a, uh, an interesting can of worms here. I mean, in terms of the your job, do you see it goes with the industry, goes with the job, or it's just part of society anyway? Um, I, th- I think it's part of society, um, yeah. for sure. You know, they, they, there was a survey. I don't know how true it is. The Evening Standard in London did it, and you know something like forty percent of seventeen, twenty, seventeen, thirty-year-olds take um, what's what's the uh, what's the word you would call uh, drugs at the weekend? Um, uh, recreational, recreational yeah, drugs. Yeah. Um, and it's of course it's prevalent massively in the music business. But my second ex-wife, she worked for Ogilvy and Mather. That's an advertising company. It's prevalent in that. And then you look at those fucking wankers from newspapers like News of the World who stitched up. Um, they stitched up the kid from London's Burning, the kid from Blue Peter. They stitched up the best broadcaster that ever came out of the UK, Johnny Walker. Um, just And he was fucking genius. Johnny Walker, oh, God. He was my radio hero. And, you know, just for doing coke. But they were all doing fucking coke. They're in the media. Um, but, yeah, everyone does it. And, it and, 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 of course, it's a huge part of the rave set. I mean, let's be honest. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I think when you look at ecstasy and you look at the rave scene, there's a there's a real link in terms of you know what happened. But I, I think I'd agree with you. I mean, in terms of you know where it's at in society, I mean, I, I've worked in a lot of different industries, and yeah, I mean, I don't think it makes a, a difference. I just think entertainment and music, it's more exposed, it's out there, it's more it's more of an accepted part of the industry, particularly when people are being creative, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, cre- I don't creativity smoke, is is um, people can be creative without drugs. There is, there is yeah. no argument, but also a lot of stuff that has 
Led, Led Zeppelin, the Beatles, the Stones, all, yeah. all, that, all that stuff. I mean, I didn't do... When I started doing coke, it was because I discovered my ex-wife did, and she said, you haven't got one friend that doesn't do drugs. And I said, I would never have a friend who did drugs. It just wasn't my thing. And um, But I remember watching a... a, 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 a I was on YouTube, actually, I think, with uh, the with with probably Kevin Saunderson was in it, and when they when they first came to play in the so in in a city right so from Detroit so when they first came to play in England was a hacienda, and they never got why the club. Um, when when they came in eighty seven and then they came in eighty eight and they said, what happened? Yeah, ecstasy. I remember reading that. I think in Sean Ryder's autobiography. Oh, right. Yeah, I mean it was because Oakenfold, right, produced yeah. the uh, yeah. Pills, Thrills, and Valiacs, hence the name. And mm. yeah, interesting era. <laughs> well, look, it's been, it's been. Um, yeah, I did. The last question I had was, what was the first record you bought? But you already answered yeah. it. I think. So, yeah, um, and you uh, could you can delete any of that. No, it's a podcast, mate. It's a <laughs> chat. And look, I really appreciate you. Um, you know, giving your time. Of course, you're up here with um, with, with Damien. We yeah, got we Damien. got we got the vault on Saturday, and then this um, we're at some rich bloke's house on. That's on, apparently that's what on, people on, say, but uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> well, you'll, we'll take you up to the house later. It's uh, yeah, it's it's more like clamping than than, than a palace. But um, yeah, good luck with all the gigs, and um, Thank looking you. forward to you know to seeing you play this week. Um, I was you, trying to remember you, the name of Damien's it. production company, but I can't remember. This isn't drugs, my no, no, memory. No, I, 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 I will put, you know what? I'll, I'll stick it on the beginning when I do the intro okay. to at least right. um, give him a mention. Um, just to round up, though, you know, if people want to find out more about about Graham Gold and you know what's the best way online to connect well, with well, you to learn well, more. Well, I, I guess uh, Facebook page, like my my, my my fan page is DJ Graham Gold. Website is GrahamGold.com. Sound to listen to my music, um, Mixcloud.com forward slash Graham Gold, SoundCloud forward slash DJ hype uh, hyphen Graham hyphen Gold. You can find me now on Spotify and Instagram. Is I'm just still getting my head around Instagram, but I'm posting more and more. Uh, DJ Graham Gold. Awesome, Graham. It's been brilliant, and uh, yeah, thank you. Keep Te- going. Ten Bart, please. Let's get <laughs> let's get you to sixty years. <laughs> Ten Bart, it is. All the best, mate. Cheers. Thanks, Matt, for having me. Cheers.